Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark as usual, episode 225. Friday, January the 21st, 2022. And hopefully this week, Mark, will be a little bit more in sync because we finally got the video recording going, although it's, our listeners won't see it, but hopefully we'll be able to see each other's, others, other, each other nodding off and me heading off for a, to go to the toilet or for a drink, etc. Um, vetgurus.com, the place to go. And just quickly, Mark, before you have a few comments um we want to thank all our supporters and head over to patreon.com vet gurus or go to our oh there we go okay our our, um, website vetgurus.com and how about throwing us a few dollars gee um 225 episodes of continuing education you have on hand and all we ask for is the equivalent of a cup of coffee um so that would be great if you gave us five or ten dollars um to help support the production of the podcast how are you mark wonderful brendan i am wonderful um it's been a um a bit of a um like we've been at home again kate and i um and i mentioned last week i think that it's like a little bit strange coming back to um to home after being away for a while and we've had some excitement in the family with Kate's father having a little bit of a health scare, but um, but everything's on the good, the right track at the moment. So, um, it's good to know that he's um, that he's on the path to recovery. It's been an amazing thing to in the middle, like a, you know, we're in Newcastle here. We have a lot of restrictions about um, who can go into hospital and who can't, and the healthcare workers and paramedics are under a lot of pressure because of COVID. Um, but the Excellence and speed of the response to Walter's health issue, um, really, I'm, I, you know, it it's breathtakingly good the healthcare that we get in this country, and um, and I don't think it's an overstatement to say that um, uh, he was within seconds of being dead, um, but for the fantastic care of the paramedics and the subsequent healthcare workers. So it's I'm over the moon that he's on the mend, Brendan. That's great to hear, and I agree wholeheartedly about our health system. We're very lucky. We all complain about it all the time, but I think we're very lucky with what we get, especially considering we basically get free healthcare for everyone if they if they need it and free um, um, free emergency care. Um, and yeah, my my few luckily few experiences i've had with the paramedics mark they've been very good and um very thorough and very nice people too um so yes and i'll tell you what mark it's the australian open here in melbourne um which is the home of the australian open and we've had a little bit of controversy recently haven't we with mr djokovic um flying in and then flying out again with the, um, I'm sure it hit the news in most countries um, of where our listeners are. And, um, yeah, I'm just looking forward to watching some tennis, Mark. I think that's it. There's, you know, we, we, I would, I would say that you and I are moderately 
um, politically active in our in our sort of day to day lives. We like to be aware, but there are certain parts of our uh, our life, like watching the tennis, that I'd be very happy if. Um, you know, it's just good to put that political stuff to one side um, and get him out of the picture, get the dynamic those dynamics out of the picture and just watch some good tennis. And hasn't Ash Bartley started off stormingly well? Um, showing yes, some there's very a few Australians in the, in the draw, both in the men's and women's, and um, hopefully some of them will go deep into the draw mark and, and perhaps even get into the final if we're lucky. I, I think an Australian last one, the Australian Open, what, 30 years ago? It was a fair, fairly long time, I think, in the women's draw anyway um, and certainly in the men's. And we haven't had a winner in the last decade or two. Um, so, yeah, I, I like watching the tennis. Um, and as you know, our girls played a fair bit of tennis when they were young and we used to go to the Australian Open um, every year and take them and we had – it was a very good time. We're not going this year. We're keeping away and we're just watching <laughs> at home on, on TV. So that's an update with the sports news, Mark. I'm going to jump into my news story. I know you haven't looked at this one, but I'm excited about this one, Mark. It's, um, it's an experiment in Israel where they taught goldfish how to drive, Mark. <laughs> I kid you not. Why would you not set up this experiment, Mark? So what happened is uh, researchers at Ben Gurion University taught six goldfish to steer a motorised water tank, and we'll link to this story, and you can see the video of it. Yeah, If you can click on it, Mark, or if you can't, I'll pass it to you at some stage. And it was a fish mobile, mobile. So basically it was equipped with a LiDAR camera, uh, a lidar and a camera that continually tracked the fish driver in quotation marks position so if the fish swam towards one side of the tank's wall the vehicle would head off in that direction um, and they used it to reward to see if the fish could um, learn um, and the fish train each fish to drive from the center of the room towards a pink board where they were given a fish treat during their first sessions, the fish averaged about two and a half successful trips to the target. But during their final sessions, Mark, they averaged about 17 and a half successful trips. And by the end of the driver's education, apart from getting their driver's learner's permit, no, they, they, the animals took faster, more direct routes to the goal. So why the hell would you do this? Um, well, they wanted to see whether or not, um, and they weren't completely supplied surprised um, that fish can actually navigate, Mark. Um, so, But isn't this bizarre, Mark? Um, it's completely who would, bizarre. Who would think up this, put fish in an obvious in a tank of water and um, on wheels, and if they move to one side, then the then the um, vehicle moves to that side, etc. cetera. Um, yes. Um, I don't know what to make about this, this Mark. Do, do, do you th how valid, one, how valid do you think this um, science is? And two, do you think they'd ever get pulled over for drink driving, these fish? <laughs> I, I, what I worry about is do the fish have a concept that they are moving their tank towards the board or are they just associating swimming in that direction um, with getting a treat, like they're, 
they're not they're probably not steering the damn thing around it's yeah, probably yeah, yeah. Uh, much more one-dimensional than that um and you could be you could be fairly confident that they are going to swim towards the location they get a food treat from I, I, yeah i don't i don't know i know this up uh, this is um the um, the article was uh, reported in behavioral brain research i don't know i don't uh i don't know that it lens i mean if there if there was a a maze on the outside if there were some obstacles that they were able to steer around that would suggest that the fishers had some understanding of space and navigation but if they're just swimming towards a pink spot on the wall through the glass of the tank i don't know that i'm buying all the conclusions they might be drawing out of this yes and and the other thing that I found interesting was that they named all the fish after Pride and Prejudice characters, and Mr. Darcy was the best driver, Mark. <laughs> so there you go. I think it would have been more more valid if one of the fish decided to be a bit of a hoon and did some donuts, you know, and just kept <laughs> moving around in circles um, for a while. Burn out the boat, burn out the boaters on the, on the fish mobile. <laughs> more real world. Yeah, that's right. What have you got for us, Mark? I think yours is a little bit more serious. <laughs> well, I, it's um, hopefully, um, it's uh, um, look. I, I worry about these uh, types of. You and I have a, a great interest in wildlife conservation, um, and we report on lots of uh, uh, articles and news stories that uh, are to do with conservation. Um, and this this is fits into that category. But you know that I worry a lot about these. This story is about um, uh, uh, well, frozen sperm, I suppose, in the short. Um, in a southeastern suburb in Melbourne, there's technically a zoo that has no visitors and no enclosures and no animals. Um, it's the Australian Frozen Zoo, which houses living cells and genetic materials from a vast range of Australian native um, and other rare and exotic species. Um, and the, uh, the team that is managing it, led by the Department of Biological Sciences, um, from the Biological Sciences from, I don't know, I think it's Melbourne University, um, Dr. Simon Clulo, uh, he is hoping that the biobanking um, will be a significant conservation tool into the future. Um, and the article cites a number of cases where captive breeding um, has been an important conservation tool. Um, it mentions the giant panda and uh, the Tassie devil looks like it's making a bounce back due to captive breeding. Um, the orange-bellied parrot and even most recently the Regent honeyeater population up here in Newcastle, uh, a number of the captive released birds from earlier this year have had nests and uh, produced wild young um, and excitingly in that story they've started to behave like wild birds um, and return to some of their traditional behaviors um, but I worry uh, Brendan about these um, captive breeding programs I, I see them as um, an important um adjunct to the main game. I think it is good to have uh, captive reserves uh, for situations where things are, are uh, catastrophic, but I, th 
And it's interesting that, that they suggest that uh, frozen zoos uh, could provide a 25-fold increase in the number of species that could be conserved, and obviously that's a staggering conservation outcome. But, geez, I, oh, there's a number of things that worry me about it, um, and I don't know that I'm entirely... Just, oh, I don't know that I'm entirely convinced that... Um, uh, that a huge amount of effort and time and money should go into this. I what's your opinion? I see your thoughts there, Mark. One, uh, I think one of your main concerns there is would it work if, if <laughs> we've got all this and can, can we then use those frozen bits to, to oh, you better get that phone, mate, um, to answer that. Um, <laughs> or he's off, to, um, he's off to answer the phone. Um, or... Um, Glad to see the phone was answered there, Mark. And yeah, and the other concern, and I can see their thoughts, their 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 reasoning, I suppose, in that this, in theory, would be cheaper. And and I think the quote there was, you know, it costs more than two hundred thousand dollars a year to to maintain a captive breeding program. Um, so they're expensive, whereas we can just bank all these. Bits um, of sperm and or ovary, I presume, at some stage, um, and um, it's a it's a more efficient and, and cost effective way to try and maintain species. But I think we get back to all the sorts of questions that we always say. You know, should we be doing this? Is do we need to? Should we be then resurrecting these species that if they do become extinct, we have these frozen sperm? It's um, you know. Um, and, and I think and other... I'm, I'm much more comfortable with keeping a a, a, a seed bank, um, Mark, for for, for sure. um, than a than a, a seed bank of for animals, um, a, a seed bank for for, for non animals. Um, and I worry that that it gives us a false sense of security. You know that um, oh look, we don't have to protect this habitat because we've got a bank, and in the future, some magic scientist is going to like just um, correct all the crap we've done to the world and everything will be back to normal. No, it won't. <laughs> we've got to do it now. We can't be um, withdrawn. We can't be sidetracked from the main game of saving habitat, preserving the habitat that we've got. And yes. um, that's the thing that worries me about these uh, projects. I think they, they serve um, a useful purpose. I don't want, to, don't want people to think that I'm, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, um, dumping on them universally, I think that um, they're a good adjunct to the main game. But I emphasise the main game is save the habitat. I agree. I agree. Okay, let's jump into our main topic this week. And it's, we've touched on this, well, several times in various forms and, and previous podcasts, but we're going to ch talk generally about pruritus, itchy rats and mice, Mark, itchy pet rats and mice and some of the some of the conditions that cause that, um, the signs, how we work them up, prevention. Um, gee, it's a, we could go over several podcasts, but I think we'll try and hit the key points of our itchy rats and mice. And I think my first note I put on there was, question mark, is it common? And my answer is yes. Um, we Very certainly common. see it, a lot of rats and mice that are presented to us in a consultation for that exact thing that my mouse or my rat is itchy and I presume you have exactly the same experience, Mark. It's definitely the same. And one of the interesting things about it I find, Brendan, is that um, the 
uh, many other species will only get presented, you know, they're secretive about their um, uh, their reaction to pruritus. They scratch themselves in private, whereas um, the clients that come in with rodents very regularly uh, present them before they've even got uh, significant lesions. Um, but those lesions, obviously, as we will talk about very shortly, can develop very quickly um, and, um, and, uh, and very serious consequences can progress from that pruritus. And it can be make that a challenge as well to to work it up and to get that diagnosis because it has gone from you know perhaps or perhaps not something that may have been um, fairly diagnostic um, initially to just a, a rat or a mouse that's ripping itself apart and we've got all these secondary you know severe infections and excoriations and almost open full open skin wounds with them and it's a bit of a nightmare you know with those so. I think we should, yeah, let's start with, or our second point would be, um, let's talk about the, the our approach to these, Mark, um, when, we, when we're presented with them in front of us. And my first comment with that, it's always getting back to what we always chat about, and that's the... The, the husbandry and the history and being an unusual pet, we know in that a lot of the problems, most of the problems we see are related to in a, inadequate or inappropriate husbandry. So we do the usual. We spend a lot of time quizzing the client about that animal that's in front of us, that rat here is in front of us. Um, is it with other rats? Is it not? What's the cleaning? What's the enclosure? What's the diet? Is there any stresses in the environment? Is there any changes in the environment recently that may have coincided with the commencement of the pruritus with that animal? And that's the first thing I always advise with these, Mark. And exactly, we go through exactly the same process, Brendan, get stuck into that history and particularly look for, you know, the the a newly introduced um uh, rodent to the colony to the family group that might change the structure uh, socially or may introduce a pathogen or that that, that the other um, rodents are unfamiliar with um, and those environmental changes you uh, indicated that that's a part of the history that you take and we while it's something we always pay attention to it's not as common as uh, I initially thought it would be but substrates changes in substrates are sometimes a feature of uh, of the development of pruritus and so those questions in the history are really important and I think another one relating to that um, stressor relating to environment is perhaps a, a rat or a mouse that's newly acquired and it didn't have pruritus and it's purchased for members of the family, children, and the animal's stressed out because it spent time um, being grabbed out of the enclosure and, and I want you know they want to love their little new ratty or their mouse and the poor animal's been overwhelmed and it ends up self-traumatising um, as a stress response with them. So I think that's the, one of the key things is always look at that history, Mark, and always go back to, you know, what's what's new, what's different, what's changed, um, and always think of the environment and the husbandry with them. Um, so what else do we think of with... Um, you know, that's our sort of workup. We get that history there, Mark. What, what what do you do next with that animal that's in front of you? Well, we tend to be uh, probably a, um, a little bit more aggressive maybe than we might be with some other species where we might make some empiric, uh, you know, at, um, treatment trials. We do try and get some samples from the skin. We try and make an assessment of the distribution of the um, areas that are being scratched. We... Um, 
you know, the samples might be skin scrapes. They might be uh, particularly impression smears are a little bit easier to do. Um, but we definitely get fairly um, uh, keen on getting diagnostics pretty quickly um, so that we've got at least a framework um, to shape the initial set of treatments. And I think it's... Um a little bit similar to what we talk about with with our birds, Mark, and that don't be afraid of if if you think you're going to traumatise that little ratty or mouse by trying to do a tape prick or a skin scrape, don't be afraid of doing a quick little gas down of that animal. They gas down quite quickly, very quickly and, and readily and, and very safely in the vast majority of cases. Um, just make sure you mention to the client that I'm going to quickly sedate the animal um, and it's easier on everybody then and you can not only um, is it less traumatic for that rat um, it's going to be a much better sample that you obtain from the animal there so and i you know the vast majority of these animals i do try and get a some sort of um, sample from the skin whether it's a whether it's a, a quick little skin scrape with a little bit of oil in the consult or i gas it down and do do a bit of a deeper scraping or a tape prep etc um, because it one of the common things we see in them um, and we may jump to that now is is ectoparasites mark um, and i think you'll be saying that you see plenty of them there and that's there's there's several groups there mark um the, the, the mange mites that we see in them um, which is you know tedris um, might the um the lice um the sucking lice like the polyplex species as well and also the fermites of the other group which um and all of them um the good news is for, for vets who or technicians who are unsure um there's great pictures online with all of these um with dr google and if you do a skin scraping or a prep and you see this little critter under the microscope um it only takes a few minutes to um, compare it to doing a bit of a search for mites or lice or or um, um, mange mites of, of these rodents and that, those pictures will pop up and they'll be able to get that diagnosis. They're one of the good things about these too is that um, you can whack your, um, your uh, phone camera up to the eyepiece of the microscope and get pretty damn decent images with the cameras that are on those mobile phones these days. And, uh, and I find the other useful thing about doing that is that um, it... It increases the client's motivation. There's no doubt in the world. If you can show them a short video of the external parasites splashing around in the oil under the microscope, um, they're keen to solve that problem. Whereas uh, They love it, don't they? <laughs> the clients love it when you show them so creepy crawly and they always go, ooh, ah, and, you know, ooh, yuck. You know? And, and um, yes, and it dramatically increases the chance that they'll actually use the products that you recommend on their pet. <laughs> um, so, yes, um, so ectoparasites are very common um, in these, and they may have been either acquired recently from a new new um, housemate there, a new littermate there, or it may have been on that animal for a length of time and, and it's immune suppressed for whatever reason, whether it's that stressful event or or inadequate husbandry or, or ageing, um, and we start to see um, signs of it. We often have uh, clients worried that the substrate is the source of the external parasite, but I think that's far less uh, common than the clients feel. It's exactly that, as you said, that um, these external parasites have been low-key um, uh, probably in the environment since they acquired them, um, and for whatever uh, stressful uh, reason, they've taken off and caused a problem. 
Yep. And uh, uh, and some of these do have some sort of classical signs with it, the, the notedries. Um, the mange mite one, for instance, often shows up as a um, their, their ears end up looking like sort of moth-eaten ears sort of eaten away, and that, that one's typically that particular parasite. And that polyplex um, variation, um, sucking lice ones, you can... Um, commonly see it with the rats especially with little pinpoint lesions along the tail um, with those ones as well um, but yeah um, we always put the the um, parasites um, the ectoparasites high on the list of a potential cause of these itchy and scratchy mice and rats mark and what's the treatment we'll jump to the treatment for that particular problem what's the classic sort of treatment for those well uh, pretty much any of the uh external parasite killing uh, chemicals but we like um, ivermectin as our sort of routine first line treatment um, and um, and yeah it's relatively easy to administer it can be um, under certain circumstances sent home as a, you know as an oral preparation uh, but we tend to um, inject it but any of the avermectin family um, revolution salamectin um, moxidectin at appropriate doses are going to knock most of those parasites on the head yep and the dose rates are a fair bit higher aren't they mark we won't talk about the actual dose rates but they are a fair bit higher than other species there so the good news is that and a very wide safety margin as well but we do often have to use a much higher dose rate than we'd use in other species um, with them um, so what else have we got mark what sort of other other causes would we have of this pruritus we've spoken about husbandry substrate in particular and stressful events and parasites what else may cause an itchy rat or a mouse well i'd love to initially talk about some of the other primary causes but um uh uh, pyoderma is something I'd like to come back to. Um, we've certainly had a couple of particularly rats that have had fairly significant um, ringworm infections. The dermatophytes have um, uh, really smashed some of the rats and, um, and then not always the um, uh, apple green fluorescent under ultraviolet light um, species. So uh, making sure good samples are collected and um, whacked into the fungassay, the the, uh, the test medium to have a look. That's always a, a, a routine part of our workup because we have had a number of uh, um, ringworm cases. Um, we definitely have had a few rats and mice that have gone along for a few weeks non-responsive and then we've diagnosed um, on biopsy a number of neoplasias that definitely can make them very, very itchy. Um, in fact, the itchiness may be the primary um, clinical sign uh, occurring first and being most notable. So um, if we haven't got a clear answer and we have highly motivated clients, uh, second short anaesthetic to get a punch biopsy at the edge of one of the lesions is a very useful exercise. We always talk about um, allergies with the clients um, uh, and certainly that's one of the common things that people come in to talk to us about that uh, they think the pine shavings that they've gotten this time uh, elicit a particular allergic response or um, some uh, plant, um, even food allergies. My experience is they've been far less frequently the case. I've had a, a couple of cases where um, uh, clinic, clinical response to changing those 
uh, environment potential environmental sources of allergen have resulted in a resolution, but you know causation. I don't know that I'm entirely. I think it convinced. might help a little bit with the recovery, but I don't think it's a primary cause, as you say, um, with those ones. And the other big one, Mark, which I'll give you my spin on this one, is that if you look in the textbooks, they talk about idiopathic um, pruritus of, of rats and mice, um, saying that it's a, well, I suppose we should call it a syndrome, shouldn't we, um, with them. Um, but it's it's mentioned in all the textbooks and often at the conferences as well. And and my my thoughts on it are and and, and I've certainly diagnosed some where I come back as the idiopathic um, um, pruritus or, or idiopathic dermatitis, and they basically all end up on um, prednisolone, um, or a lot of them do, um, or variations on anti-inflammatory or analgesics, um, and maybe. Um, um, antibiotics to cover secondary infections with with limited success. Some I have had some that they dramatically improve and and, and stay itch free for for weeks or months. But um, a lot of them, that's not the case. And I think it is that we just haven't got down to that proper diagnosis with most of these. That we've we've missed that diagnosis because it's been masked by the fact that that animal's got to that final stages of ripping itself apart and and we we struggled to even prevent that let alone detect the underlying initial cause of that animal so that's my theory with these ones mark that we're probably way over it's just we're over diagnosing that syndrome or condition because we're not good enough at diagnosing the actual initial cause well I'm, i i think you do yourself a disservice because i think the initial cause can be really hard to diagnose and particularly as we highlighted before um the massive amount of self-trauma these animals can do with their very very tiny but very very sharp claws <laughs> yes. um it, it really um turns the whole mess into a uh, uh you know chronic um uh traumatic dermatitis uh, complicated by bacteria which just sticks a gigantic mask over the initial um, the initial cause um, and I do find our experience has been that many of these are complicated very quickly as a consequence of the self-trauma by bacteria um, and while I'd be very you know, routinely tend to focus on one aspect, you know, the one aspect of the diagnosis. I would very quickly in rodents um, uh, be looking to get antibiotics onto, into them as part of their treatment protocol to limit the chance of secondary infection. Well, that's a perfect segue into our treatment um, advice there, Mark. And um, you've mentioned antibiotics and there's I suppose there's several different antibiotics. Ideally, we choose it on culture and sensitivity as, as we should with, en with any um, any um, infectious process. But otherwise, the ones um, I'm tending to, to reach for with these are um, amoxicillin clavulinic acid. Um, um, seems, you know, so those broad-spectrum type antibiotics. Um, doxycycline um, I've used in these seems to help, and, I, and whether or not that's because of the compliance of the doxycycline um not just the, the range of bugs that it will hit and, and maybe that uh immunomodulation effect that doxycycline has as well so it's helping with that itch a little bit as well uh, mark so we so antibiotics is 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 one thing which is so what's what's your general take on um when or if we use either anti-inflammatories and or cortisone in these animals, Mark? I, I 
am a big fan of trying to leave it till it's the you know last quiver in my bow. Um, I am um, more comfortable using um, meloxicam as an anti-inflammatory agent, um, but I do worry um, that uh, that many of those hidden causes that we're worried about um, may get progressively worse uh, with corticosteroids. There's no doubt, though, that some of those chronically um, affected animals um, with the very complex overlying layers, um, that you just need to provide them with some quality of life. You're at a point where you're going to, um, you know that you might never cure them and euthanasia might be in their future. You want to just make sure they're comfortable until that decision's made. So so we definitely use uh, corticosteroids, but uh, they're certainly not in our first line of, uh, of attack. Yep, I agree. And make no mistake that there are a large number of clients with itchy rats or mice where they won't go to the, the cost or the, exp- or, or the effort um, to let us do the workup that we want with them. So we're left with a really itchy animal that's uh, that's even having poor quality of life um, and they're the ones that we just have to reach for sort of our, our supportive care and our, our, our sort of broad spectrum antibiotics and or our, our um, non-steroidals um, and I think they're the frustrating ones because um, I think there's a fair number of them that if we were allowed to work them up or at least look at them again at revisits um, and, and and do a further further examination once that um, we've broken that cycle um, with them um, we may get that um, final diagnosis with that animal. So speaking of um, uh breaking the cycle, um, as well as the um, medical treatments, there are some um, regularly used uh, um, uh, barrier treatments. So we would routinely be looking at just trying to take some of the sharpness off the the nails of the hind legs in particular, just so that um, they can't lacerate themselves as quickly. And some of those manically affected um, uh, rats and mice um, will even uh, range uh, um, some form of body armour, some sort of body splint to limit the chance that they can continue the cycle. And some of those, once you can break the cycle with those techniques, um, you can, you can in some animals, have an outstanding return um, to normal health. Um, it's not something that I'd, you know, like an e-collar, are there emergency treatments for short periods of time to change things? Um, they're not a long-term treatment. I think it's uh, not a reasonable welfare outcome to have an animal um, held in such a way that um, it, it uh, permanently can't do its normal thing, if, and, even if that's, and that's where, Yeah, and that's where we have that discussion about quality of life with the client and um, we may have to stop with them. So... That leads into the prognosis with these, and the good news is with those ones, especially those those parasitic ones, um, it, it's great when you get a diagnosis of, of, of one of those, and they haven't gone too far down the track of ripping themselves apart. Because um, we end up being the hero with those ones, don't we, Mark? We get an amazing response with a lot of them, and, and the animals back to normal, and it doesn't recur with them if we do things right with those ones. Whereas 
some of those other other causes there um, it, 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 or an animal that's immune compromised and getting old and it's um, starting to get chronic skin issues can be a real a real challenge and and um, we go down that rabbit hole of trying to trying to do that diagnosis and multiple multiple um, diagnostics and still end up with a with an animal we can't fix with them mark and certainly there is a proportion of them that we're not going to fix but like you uh, you have commented on um, this is a condition that um, you can reasonably in a, in a significant proportion of the patients expect to cure them um, and so it's definitely worth uh, at least outlining to the clients the the uh, diagnostic pathways that you might take and as you said not all of them will go that way um, but it's surprising when you do make it apparent um, that the number of clients that do um, decide to uh, investigate to some degree what's going on to see if we can get a cure. And a couple more comments before we close, Mark. Um, any thoughts on topical treatments with these? Um, and particularly the, the, the classic would be that the client says, oh, I've been using some mite spray um, from the pet shop and your thoughts on using um, washes or, or, or bathing solutions on these animals? Well, I think um, uh, the, the majority of the external parasites are not very sensitive to the routine insecticides that are in sprays. My experience has been that, um, that they don't work. Um, and so the fact that the client has used those things is not a reason not to investigate those things further. Um, and, um, and I suppose I'm always, one of the things I'm always conscious of with our little rodents, um, is the stress of bathing them. Um, it's not an easy thing to do and it's not, um, you know, uh, a really simple thing to do. Um, we certainly have used uh, baths as an adjunct to dermatophyte treatments, um, uh, but I think um, I am careful of those. Uh, um, I really want a, a clear pathway that tells me those uh, external baths or topical treatments are going to work. There's been a couple of um, uh, rats that we've used um, uh, eye, uh, cortisone-containing eye cream as, you know, that last. Um, it was relatively easy for the client to put on. There was a relatively focal area the rat was at. Um, and so those um, ophthalmic creams can sometimes be useful. But as I said, they're certainly not part of our, our the first part of our um, armament in treating these rodents. Yep, I agree. And finally... Well, we've sort of covered it as best we could, haven't we, Mark? Prevention of these. And I think it's all I would say is, um, you know, make the, the obvious things we spoke about at the start, the environment and husbandry, make that environment as as relaxing as as um, um, give them plenty of things to do, environmental enrichment, um, clean the enclosure don't let it get grotty but don't make it super super clean when that rat or that mouse is stressed out like it's a you know hospital cage at a, at a clinic and they don't feel relaxed in there it's Beware a good it. i was just going to say it's a good point to uh, mention that um we would recommend routinely retaining some of the bedding from the previous exactly. iteration of yes. um, cleaning you don't obviously don't want to store the most soiled and and disgusting stuff but the smells that they put in and and the familiarity they have with that it's good to 
carry that over to the next uh, the next lot of bedding. So you're right; those stresses of and it, and obviously people get much more scrupulous when they think uh, the environment might be a contributing factor. And sometimes I think they can be making things worse with their uh, hospital grade disinfectants and absolute reduction of the enclosure to a white walled sterile environment. Absolutely. And I tell you what, teenagers take it to the nth degree, don't they, with retaining their, their bedding and their clothes and that. God, you go, it's so fezzy. Um, and, and one of my daughters, I won't say which one, is still a little bit like that. And my wife goes in there and she cranks open all the windows and she says, look at this mess. And yeah, she gives up after a while and cleans up for her instead of waiting for her to clean up. Um, yeah, so prevention, so the environment and husbandry, um, being careful about introducing new animals and we're always worried about... Um, we didn't mention it, one of the um, causes of, of fur loss in these animals and then potentially subsequent pruritus is barbering. Um, we didn't mention that. So barbering, for those who don't know, the, the a more dominant animal will, will overgroom or barber the less dominant animal and typically it's around the muzzle of the, of the um, less dominant animals. So they chew on the whiskers and the face and they get a bald and around the eyes and, and um, sometimes it's over the whole body, but it can start with barbering. So being very careful about introducing new animals um, and then it, it introduces the topic of um, desexing and, and um, behavioural control related to that as well with them. Any other sort of preventative um, comments, Mark, about trying to stop itchy rats and mice? I always worry when we get to this part of the podcast and we talk about prevention because it's the same old, same old. It's, <laughs> it's um, basic husbandry. Pay attention to environmental enrichment. Pay attention to contact with uh, new members and, and um, yeah, it, it, we, I feel like we um, jump up on our soapbox and say the same thing, but hopefully we're saying it in slightly different ways and different circumstances, Brendan. Well, I think... You're telling us it's the end of the podcast. So I think we'll stop here and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.